Welcome, my friends, to Positive Psychology, Coaching and Leadership, or Leadership and Coaching. Forget the order. But in this course, we're going to be looking at this kind of deeper dynamic of kind of applied psychology. It's 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 great. And this is the, the misunderstanding about positive psychology, that it's like how to be happy all the time. It's actually, no, we live in a world that has all kinds of stressors, all kinds of complexities, you know, not even for this point, but I wanted to just have her here because she's cute. But, you know, like holding a baby while doing the intro slide of a university course. Weird times. We're all trying to survive. You're all great people. She's she's saying, yeah, she likes you too. So what's positive psychology in these times? What's positive psychology in an era where you have every legit, legitimate reason in the world to be upset or down or jaded or confused how do you stay resilient how do you stay strong how do you stay focused how do you cultivate family and community and meaningful real relationships that will sustain you and help you have a life welcome to the course let's get into it all right charlotte say say good luck good luck everybody The science of psychology has been far more successful on the negative than on the positive side. It's revealed to us much about man's shortcomings, his illnesses, his sins, but little about his potentialities, his virtues, his achievable aspirations, or his psychological height. His or her, obviously, for all these. And it's as if psychology has voluntarily restricted itself to only half of its rightful jurisdiction and that the darker, meaner half. And I think what this Maslow kind of hints at this point that, like, so much of what's discussed in psychology is when things are going wrong. And that makes sense. It makes sense that an understanding of the mind would kind of have this, or people interested in understanding the mind would have this tendency to want to try to maybe help people that are experiencing mental anguish. And at the same time, though, it's important to understand, and the point of this course is to look at how some of these principles actually have this generative function or can help people move towards higher levels of personal experience and and uh, life engagement and satisfaction and, and purpose. So in positive psychology, and I know that this slide's like fairly basic, and I'm going to move my picture, but uh, it says in the bottom right there, it says flourishing, right? And it's like, there's sort of this traditional psychology has been very folk, and obviously this is an oversimplification, but traditional psychology has been very focused on this idea of when people are mentally unwell, how to get them sort of back to average level functioning or to become a functioning person again. And sometimes that means in terms of the relationship, sometimes that means in the terms of their own self-talk or in terms of their behavioral addictions or in terms of their relational patterns, right? But that for a lot of the history of psychology, traditional psychology is focused on this. You know, I remember when I was in university it used to be called abnormal psychology like not normal psychology like when there was problems with the system and oftentimes that happened because of some kind of brain injury or because of some well, what we would now call the sort of whole array of mental health and so there's the traditional psychology viewpoint on this and then positive psychology is going to be utilizing psychological understandings to go even further and push in more of this generative or or growth promoting 
positive psychology direction. Right, so some of the things we're going to be looking in at looking at in this course is like, well, how do we develop relationships where we have like more of those good days? And how do we develop like mental health where, you know, we hit those low pits like less? And how do we do how do we increase our functioning? And so that's kind of the, the at the most core level what this is, is this is like this trend in psychology to look at how ideas in psychology can be used to improve human functioning beyond just average levels of functioning. So in a course like this, in this special topics course, it's like I'm going to treat it a little different than like a first or second or third year psych class where it's like, you know, we're going through a textbook and I'm giving you a definition, definition, definition. It's like, I'm going to kind of assume that you have some understanding, like quite not some, like a, a developed understanding of psychology. And in this class, I want to really kind of highlight what's unique about this approach and what this approach can sort of add to our broader conceptualizations of psychology. And like Sligman's saying here, the aim of positive psychology is actually to be a catalyst of change, right? To be a philosophical thread in the literature of psychology that tries to lean it away from just this complete preoccupation focus on repairing the bad things in life to also looking at some of these more positive qualities, right? Like how do we help people build things like courage and honesty and truthfulness and dependability? And how do we do that in a way that actually matters and actually is like meaningful and relevant and impactful? So an idea from Sligman's work that I want you to know, and you might, you've probably come across this in a different class, but one thing that I might, um, that I want to link to with the first reflection, and I want to make a quick note of that. I'll say this other places too, but I totally understand that I'm like coming in late with some of this stuff. And, um, the first assignments like on the schedules due pretty soon, I'm going to definitely give an extension on that and give you more time. So just so you know that, um, I'll make a more formal announcement too. But I'm going to be asking you to look at this idea, right? Look at this idea of PERMA. And we don't have to take 3,000 notes on it. It's like, actually, I want you to just think about this theoretically in relation to your experience. It's like, okay, there's a lot of ways you could live your life. and But what we know is that sort of across the spectrum of ways you can live a good life, if we believe that that's such a thing, it's like there's certain areas where we, where the improvements in those areas have this like kind of butterfly effect improvement over overall experience of life. And those areas are in this area of like developing positive emotions, right? Developing the ability to see the good in things, developing positive emotions as a way to fight against the helplessness and desperation and hopelessness that's so common in our society or like engagement. Like how can we use, well, how can we, a word that used to get used a lot in psychology was called psychological involvement, which is sort of the same idea. It's like, do you care about what you're doing? Are you fascinated with what you're doing? Because that like kind of pulls your work forward. And it's like, and you all know, it's like if you're bored about an assignment or a lecture or a paper or whatever, it's hard to work at it. So it's like, okay, so number one, can we in increase the amount of legitimate, authentic, positive emotion in your life? 
Can we make you feel more engaged and kind of psychologically involved in what you're doing in a way that feels stimulating to you? Can we help build relationships that are characterized by things like trust and loyalty and responsibility and shared commitment? Can we help you establish your what your meaning and purpose is in life and add this kind of existential meaning element? Or like what I mean by that is just this like life purpose, goal, focus, vision, all those kind of ideas. And then the last idea is accomplishment, right? So the A represents this idea that one way to actually start seeing major improvements in our life is to make commitments to these small changes and to chip away at it and to actually start to see, accomplish things and actually start to see that that when we make a plan towards optimizing or towards like sort of getting better or leveling up or making personal improvements in our life that one way to do that is to kind of make the then these changes that we can kind of see and whether we're talking about like physical training or whether we're talking about changing in falling into certain patterns of negative self-talk or whether we're talking about getting into the same old relationship fights over and over again that we can actually through accomplishing successes in becoming this new version of ourselves that there's actually something psychotherapeutic and generative about that so that's the PERMA model, which really sort of is just like an acronym to encapsulate basically Sleepman's entire theory on positive psychology as a sort of response to learned helplessness or as a response to the hopelessness and the isolation that people feel. Mature positive psychology needs to return to its existential and humanistic roots to rediscover the richness of lived experience and the many pathways to a meaningful life. This is Dr. Paul Wong and he's he makes an awesome argument and I, I'll link this uh, article in the course site. I should make a note to do that but not while I'm recording but uh because this is a really and if I forget to if someone wants to just shoot me an email saying I, I'm, I forgot to do that I would love to share this with you because this is an awesome paper and Paul Wong does a really good job in this article setting out this idea of like how positive psychology isn't just like flowery talking like oh we should all try to do better and be happy more it's like okay great but like how do you do that in a scenario where maybe you're depressed or maybe you've lost someone or maybe you're in a negative isolated situation and it's like you need more substance than just trying to be happy and this is where existentialism comes in right because people have been struggling with these questions of like who am i and how do i fit into the world and what's the purpose of this and how do i fit into the universe and is there a god and is there a soul and is there a self and who am i and who am i to know any of this and all these questions about kind of the core of existence existential and so over the next few weeks I'm, or through some of today and and some of next week i want to kind of make our next presentation make this point about how existential and then next i'm going to talk also about phenomenology later but how those two kind of schools of philosophy are almost like the philosophical rationale or the logic behind the aims of positive psychology because positive psychology is very applied and that can make it present as if it's simple and my argument is that it's actually not simple, but what it is, is it's almost like the surface level 
outreach of this almost applied existential phenomenological look at human suffering and human experience. And I like this, I like this comic because it kind of highlights an interesting joke, right? It's like a guy staring at the stars and being like, why am I here? You know, you can picture that thousands of tens of thousands of years ago. And then there's a dude just like on coldslaw.com just to make sure I double checked and that's not a website. So there's some guys on like coldslaw.com reading about like salad, just being like, what am I doing? like people have been asking themselves questions about like what they're doing with their life the question is as old as time on that note of being as old as time it's like i find it really interesting and a part of this presentation is going to become kind of a breakdown of that article i just mentioned like existential positive psychology um by by paul wong and uh I think maybe some of his students help, but Paul Wong is like a big name. He's basically the name in existential positive psychology. And this idea of how if you can combine ideas from positive psychologies with this longer mythical, kind of not mythical, but yeah, sort of like the idea of the hero's journey, the call to adventure, the challenges and temptations, the, the death and rebirth, the transformation, the atonement, the return. It's like... There's a cost we pay as a society for not having this. Society needs heroes, and, and I don't mean that in a weird way. Like, I mean, because your your hero journey might be overcoming a mental health issue. It might be helping a, a dying older relative. It might be taking care of kids when it's stressful. It might be all kinds of things, and it's like, I think devaluing that heroic aspect of life is a, is a mistake. Because I think it actually can be a, a powerful motive. And again, if you look at the work of someone like Carl Jung, like this hero motif in the hero journey is as old as time. The hero is like literally an archetype. I'll read this to you quick. Existential psychology is about human existence and the human drama of survival and flourishing. It's inherently positive at its core. So it means like it's at its core, it's positive, because it emphasizes the courage and responsibility of confronting this existential anxiety and living an authentic life. Like, how do you live in this world that has all these threats to who we are? And how do you do that in a way that's authentic and real? Unfortunately, the popular existential literature tends to focus on the darker side of human condition, right? So like a lot of the Especially if you look at some of the things like Dostoevsky and you look at like War and Peace and, I mean, sorry, uh, Crime and Punishment. And it's like, it's a really dark look at guilt and shame. And I'll talk a bit more about Dostoevsky specifically next week, but, or next time, but a lot of it's focused on suffering. Existential psychology can learn from positive psychology, scientific methods, and, and this focus on the positive. And it's not like, so it's a little bit different, right? It's like, what, what if we use some of those understandings of like meaning and soul and passion and all these things that are often used to talk about despair. But what if we use some of those and, and explore how they relate to 
you know, human optimization, like how if you actually have, you're in a social environment where you actually care about the people and you exist in an authentic way, in a meaningful way, and you're able to put yourself in positions where, you know, you might be able to have experiences that weren't otherwise available, whether we're talking performative or whether we're talking cognitively or spiritually or whatever. So he's going to be another character we talk about at several points in this course, uh, Dr. Irvin D. Yalom. And uh, there's a video I'm going to be including in this presentation that has, um, that references him. And he's somebody we're going to come back to. And he, he wrote extensively on this idea, like, like when Nietzsche wept, Mama in the meaning of life, loves executioners, the gift of the helper, the Schopenhauer cure, existential psychotherapy practice of psychotherapy starring and this uh, staring at the sun i guess i didn't have to read all those to you sorry i'm trying not to just read you this presentation but there's parts of this that i kind of want you to have in your notes because it'll be helpful and then there's going to be parts where we're kind of just chatting more but here i would like you to have this idea that yalom thoughts and yalom's probably the biggest name in group psychology and i mean i don't mean like kind of social psychology i mean um group therapy psychology right like doing therapy with groups of people rather than individual and so he talks about these like 11 universals of a therapeutic group and i'm going to talk about that a lot in the week where we talk about therapeutic groups but here i want to mention this idea that he has this idea that existential anxieties so there's like these four main anxieties that we deal with and there's a video coming up that's going to talk about this more but we're all trying to deal with death and some of us are running from dealing with that. And he, again, he's saying like, this is obviously this kind of bubbles to the surface for people at different times in their life. And sometimes the anxieties are around mortality. Sometimes the anxieties around, he, he talks about freedom and this is a kind of difficult one to explain, but basically what he means is like, if you take, if you believe in freedom and if you believe in basically free will, then you believe that what you do matters and therefore you're immediately responsible so he says people have this like almost desire to believe that the world's just happening to them and that they're they're not free they don't have free will because that excuses things too and it's a deeper concept but it's like he's saying this is actually like a core anxiety like a core existential existence level anxiety is like This, well, this age-old question of free will, right? So freedom and free will are sort of similar, right? Like if, if you had no freedom, you would have no f ability to have free will. I guess you could say freedom is an expression of free will. And then isolation. I probably don't have to spend tons of time in 2022 explaining the existential issues associated with isolation and meaninglessness or like feeling like what you're doing doesn't matter in isolation in that sense he's talking about a, a psychological emotional isolation and then paul wong in his in his comments on yalom is talking about how yalom has these four main ideas and then suggests this this notion so if you have in your notes that paul wong suggests adding like a fifth and a sixth existential core anxiety around identity who am i and happiness like struggling with this idea that parts of our lives aren't enjoyable right and that 
where does the suffering piece fit in? Okay, so this is going to be, these are, um, and part of what I'm doing in this presentation is I'm kind of introducing some of the things we're going to be digging deep into in this course. So I like this quote from Paul Wong that I want to share. And I know today's like very Paul Wong focused, but I, why I like him is because I know that for positive psychology, you've probably heard of it before, or at least you can pretty quickly get your head around the idea. And I didn't want to spend the whole day just giving you sort of like the history of that because I wanted to pretty quickly branch into existentialism because it's what kind of gives weight to this whole line of thought. And over the next or in the next presentation, I'm going to really dive into some of the existential thinkers behind this. And Paul Wong, I like his essay here because I find that it makes a really nice bridge between the two as he introduces this concept of existential positive psychology. An identity crisis isn't limited to adolescence. It can be an ongoing struggle to define and redefine ourselves when we go through these major life transitions or upheavals. The search for identity requires self-knowledge. The ancient Delphic injunction, that's awesome. So at Delphi, the oracle of Delphi, carved into the litanel at the temple of Apollo. Know thyself. The Delphic injunction, the demand, the teaching. Know thyself, right? Famously what the oracle at Delphi said to Socrates, still resonates with the postmodern generation. Without a clear sense of self-knowledge, we can go through life without ever knowing who we are and what we really want. So this next uh, quote here, and again, you don't have to be necessarily writing these down. You can if you want. These are actually like, what I tried to do is really like, and not just pull quotes from the essay, but sort of, you know, traditional lecture teach and try to just teach what this idea of existential positive psychology means. And part of it is going to be yeah, breaking down this essay because like he says here that authenticity, right? Like this is the weird thing. It's like you can... What am I trying to say? It's really hard to be authentic. All you can do is not be not authentic. All you can do is restrict the amount of times you're not being true to yourself. And in doing so, that sort of as a byproduct makes you more authentic. Authenticity, being authentic, the practice of being authentic has been a recurrent theme in existential literature. And one of the real heavyweights that we're going to get into. And I guess you could here Wong's calling him a kind of referring to him in relation to existentialism an absolute heavyweight in phenomenology maybe the phenomenologist after Husserl Martin Heidegger differentiates or says there's a difference between non-authentic and authentic ways of living right people living in a non-real or non-authentic way give up their individuality and responsibility for the security of being part of the herd in contrast authentic real people Non-phony people assume responsibility to live in a way that's consistent with their own true nature and core values. Right, so you see here, it's like the motivation is coming internally and not externally. They strive to become what they were made to be in spite of the anxiety and risk involved. You know, you could tweak that just a little bit and make that an awesome quote. Strive what you were made to be despite of the anxiety and risk involved. Despite. Let's try, let me try that one more time. 
Strive to become what you were made to be despite the anxiety and risk involved. It's good advice. It's advice from Martin Heidegger. So at one or another point in your academic life, you've maybe come across this idea of flow by Csikszentmihalyi. And he, uh, I got an in interesting kind of tie-in with him because one of my professors at Waterloo was named Roger Mano, who worked with Csikszentmihalyi because Csikszentmihalyi was one of his teachers. So there's sort of like an interesting connection with, you can kind of draw a line between him and the psychology department at Waterloo. And he, he coined this idea of flow, right? That basically there's like an optimization level. There's like a point where a course could be too easy for you and it's boring. And there's a course where there's a point where a course could be too hard for you and it could be anxiety provoking. And it's about like finding that perfect middle zone is where your performance is going to be highest. And there's a similarity between this idea of flow and, and Zykovsky's idea of the zone of proximal development, but the idea is that there's like a state of pressure, right? So when the challenge is at a level that is high enough, but and your skill level, like so the mixture of what's being demanded and your ability to meet what's what de demanded, if it's like if you're like a professional, if you're like a pretty good hockey player and you're playing against a bunch of kids, it's too easy, it's boring. But if you're playing against pro-level players, it's too hard and it's anxiety-provoking. But if you're playing with people that are roughly your level and you're in a competitive game that you're really engaged in, it's like that's probably when you're going to have the most like engaged flow-style experience. You're in that perfect flow channel. Okay, so flow is going to be an idea that we come to a few times in the course, especially when we're talking about... Um, the sport psychology aspect of it because as a coach and as a as a trainer or whatever or as a leader you're trying to kind of do what you can to get your team or your individual athlete or whatever into that flow state as as commonly as possible right as as much of the time as possible as frequently as possible i should have just said Besides neural anatomical changes in flow, there are neurochemical changes, right? The brain produces a giant cascade of neurochemistry. You get norepinephrine, dopamine, anandamide, serotonin, and endorphins. All five of these are performance-enhancing neurochemicals, right? So they make you faster, stronger, quicker, and they do the same thing with your brain. front end of a flow state, you take in more information, you process it more deeply, meaning you process it using more parts of your brain, you process it more quickly. There's some debate about this, but it does appear that you process it more quickly. This is norepinephrine and dopamine. So when people enter a flow state, they talk about feeling like their senses are incredibly heightened. This is the performance enhancing aspect of norepinephrine and dopamine. Where these chemicals really come in handy is how they affect motivation, creativity, and learning. We'll start with motivation. Besides being performance-enhancing chemicals, these are obviously all feel-good drugs, right? These, these five chemicals are the most potent feel-good drugs the brain can produce. As a result, flow is considered the most addictive state on Earth. 
Scientists don't like the word addictive, so instead they use autotelic. When something is autotelic, it is an end in itself. What it means is that once an experience starts producing flow, we will go extraordinarily far out of our way to get more of it, which is why researchers now believe flow is the source code of intrinsic motivation. Another thing that those neurochemicals do is they augment the creative process. So creativity is always recombinatory. It's the product of novel information, bumping into old thoughts to create something startlingly new. So if you want to amplify creativity, you want to amplify every aspect of that process. Again, the neurochemicals help. So on the front end of the flow state, when you get norepinephrine and dopamine, they're tightening focus. So you are taking in more information per second. So you're boosting that part of the creative process. Norepinephrine and dopamine do something else in the brain, which is they lower signal to noise ratio. So you detect more patterns. They jack up pattern recognition. So our ability to link ideas together is also enhanced. We're taking in more information, we can link it together. Anandamine, which is another chemical that shows up in flow, doesn't just promote pattern recognition, it promotes lateral thinking. So pattern recognition is more, more or less the linking of familiar ideas together. Lateral thinking is the linking of very disparate ideas together, right? So more information per second, all kinds of pattern recognition, lateral thinking, all of it surrounds the creative process and amplifies all of it, which is why, for example, studies run by my organization, the Flow Genome Project, we found creativity is increased 500 to 700%. To give you another example, in a recent Australian study, they took 42 people, gave them a very tricky brain teaser to solve, the kind that needs very creative problem solving. Nobody could solve the problem. They induced flow artificially using transcranial magnetic stimulation to basically knock out the prefrontal cortex. They induced artificial transient hypofrontality, technically. As a result, 23 people solved the problem in record time. So massively amplified motivation, massively amplified creativity. The last thing flow does that's really important is it jacks up learning. So a quick shorthand for how learning works is the more neurochemicals that show up during experience, the better chance that experience has of moving from short-term holding into long-term storage, right? Neurochemicals, among their many other functions, one of them is to tag experiences. Big neon signs saying, really important, save for later. Because flow is this giant neurochemical dump, it massively amplifies learning. So in studies run by DARPA and researchers at Advanced Brain Monitoring in California, when they introduced flow artificially, this time kind of using neurofeedback in soldiers, marksmen to be exact, they found that soldiers in flow learned to shoot 230% faster than normal. When they redid this study using novice marksmen, they did it with riflemen and archers, what they discovered is that the period of time it takes to train a novice archer or novice marksman up to the expert level when they're in flow can be cut in half. So Malcolm Gladwell's famous 10,000 hours to mastery, what the research shows is that flow cuts it in half. So before I move on from Paul Wong and get into some of the other ideas I wanted to touch on but in the remainder of this, I do want to say, like, in case you're in a place of questioning things yourself, it's like one of the ideas from existential thought is that that's actually good, that actually you being dissatisfied with things is actually a sign that you're paying attention and that you're correctly valuing yourself and 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 that you actually have maybe a hopeful view of the world that's like discontentment i'll just read this and kind of talk about it that this idea that discontentment's a double-edged sword it distracts us from maybe being happy or having life satisfaction but it also gives us an opportunity of growth and reform it shows us where there's problems right dissatisfaction with where we are 
motivates us to advance to where we want to be. Existential positive psychology recognizes that discontentment is an essential part of human nature, right? But distinguishes or says that there's healthier and less healthy forms of discontent, right? So if you're like discontent and mad with everything and you drown it in a bottle and in your own negative self-talk, it's like, okay, that's not pushing anything forward. But if you find, use it as a way to identify where you can get stronger, that's what the people around you need. Personal greed or blind ambition can represent a destructive type of discontent, but striving for higher values and greater virtues can represent a healthier version. It's okay to be upset when things are going badly, but how do you challenge, how do you channel that? It's a cool point, right? Because I really want to, and I don't mean to have like a negative or an aggressive like attitude towards this presentation, but I really kind of wanted to do away with this idea that positive psychology is us all just like pretending that we're happy about things. Cause it's like, it, it couldn't be less that it's that actually it's that there's a true happiness that comes from standing tall in the face of adversity. Hmm, that's a decent quote. I'll go with that freestyled. All right, next slide. So I wanted to touch on this, right? That one thing that positive or existential positive psychology teaches is that there's that mature happiness isn't just this like kind of naive, like everything's daisies and everything's cool. It's like, well, no, it's actually a more authentic happiness that comes from actually being a real person and having real thoughts and thinking your own ideas and not just thinking ideas that you heard someone else say. And it's like, there's something about being authentic that is intrinsically rewarding in itself. And then they also talk about how there's this uh, endemonic happiness or basically this like friendship level happiness, right? It's a Greek word. And uh, it basically just means like the happiness that comes from voluntary or kind of like charity or, or supportive work. And that can be little, that can be like literally helping a stranger. That can also be like, this morning I was rushed getting ready for my college class and my daughter was also stressed for school. And I, there was something I needed to do before I did start my class and my daughter's about to leave. And I decided to like put that thing on the side and spend that time trying to calm her down. And like, that's like a one little tiny micro thing, but it's like also the most important thing in the world at the same time, right? It's like those small things don't matter and they're all that matters. It's like, there's, there's something about doing things for the ones you love sort of core to what this whole human being a human game is and then the cryonic or chironic not sure even how to pronounce that necessarily but it's weird because i've like read that word a million times but never i don't think this is, i think that's the first time i ever tried to say it out loud and i kind of bluffed at it but yeah it basically just means this like happiness that comes by feeling at in a sense of something in uh, in touch with something right like whether you're like i know a lot of you up in north bay probably some of you are probably campers and hikers and stuff and get out there in the in the wilderness and so i won't have to explain to you the beauty of a, of a still lake or a starry night and how that can make you feel connected with things and i, I threw up as the picture here that's certain that's i'm not trying to be like religious or whatever but this is a uh, saint francis of assisi's who's who is like famously like one of 
known as like the happiest person right and he like communicated with animals and you should look up those stories if you find it interesting all right but he would be a good example of someone that found like that kind of spiritual happiness or is reported to have interest very interesting character and so Frankel's another one of these guys that I'm going to come back to at multiple points throughout this course. And Frankel, as you, you probably know about Frankel, and you probably know about how he was in the Holocaust as like a, or he was in Auschwitz specifically as a prisoner during uh, Nazi occupation of, of Central Europe. And like, one of the things is that when he came out, so, okay, so let me just say this super quick so that I don't just ramble all over the place. So basically, he's he's a prisoner in the camp. One of the things that got him through is this idea that when he got out, he'd be able to reunite with his wife. He gets out of the camp, realizes his wife's dead, had been killed by the Nazis. He goes into this deep depression. What pulls him out of the depression is writing Man's Search for Meaning. And this idea that, like, actually life can be meaningful, but you have to work at it. You can have creative values that we can give up ourselves to the world through creative efforts and you know whether it's through like teaching or through music or through performance or through just being a good person or just playing with kids or like whatever it's like there's this aspect of using creative efforts to add value these are ways of adding value and meaning I mean, think of what value means like we use value to talk about like how much something costs it's like no like value is like how much something's worth and that word's more than just a financial word What's the experience value or the experiential value? Right, and I just made that like comment about some of you up in the North Bay area. It's like take advantage of starry nights if you can see them. That's literally visual therapy for your brain. It reworks certain wiring patterns. Like basically, what I the best way I would say it is it's visual therapy. Your ancestors have stared at that kind of light for a long time. For almost all of human history, the only light you would be exposed to at night was stars, the moon reflection, and campfire light. Campfire light's very different than other light. Human beings have been... Campfire is another example of an experiential value or, or spiritual... or like this spiritual connection, right? There's something about looking into a, a wood-burning fire. And I'm not trying to be weird about it, but I'm just saying, like, your ancestors have been doing that for a hundred thousand years, more. Attitudinal values, we adopt a, a positive attitude towards negative situations beyond our control. So what he's basically saying is that there's actually values. There's actually a lot of value in the type of attitude you have. There's a lot of value in the type of experiences that you generate for you and for your loved ones. There's a lot of value in the type of creativity you can bring to sometimes trying world there's a value in all of that and that value helps us live more meaningful lives lives full of value to just say the same word 20 times right but that that's actually how to incorporate the ideas of frankel into this broader discussion of positive psychology So I tried something new in this presentation and I'm actually hardcore nervous because like in the next slide and I think two points in this, maybe three, but I think only two, 
I watched the video kind of with you and I paused a bunch and I'm just hoping it turns out really good because uh, that would be a cool dynamic to add to future videos. I've never really done that before. I've done like short reaction videos but never within a big file because this is going to be like I'm on I'm getting towards the end but this is going to be over an hour and a half so this is going to be a big file. So anyways, I'm just hoping the tech works. If you see me in the next one or coming up and there's a video and it looks like it's like decently synced between me and the video, then then I'll be over here pretty happy. So Paul Wong presents this thing that he calls the pure model. Purpose, understanding, responsible, responsibility in both action and in reaction. So think about that. Existential positive psychology's map for you to have a better life is to focus on doing things or focus on articulating your purpose, understanding the demands of your life and your situation. You can also, you could, it wouldn't work as good for the acronym, but you could call that situational awareness, like learning to get better and better at identifying your situation. And part of that is how you're behaving. And this is where R comes in, like this responsibility or our L street here R stands for responsible actions and reactions consistent with your purpose and understanding so that you have this under you have this purpose in your life you're trying to do a certain thing based on your understanding of the world and so that you're acting and responding to things that arise in a way that's informed by that that's not just impulsive and that you're evaluating yourself through self-reflection to kind of check yourself on how authentic you're being Right, the E represents this constant need for evaluation to ensure authenticity and efficiency or efficacy. The pure model, so FC just that it's actually working, that your plan's working. Right? This is like Piaget's assimilation and accommodation idea that you're like playing out this model, but this is much more intentional, right? You're intentionally saying, This is what I'm trying to do with my life. This is my situational understanding of what's going on in my world based on what I'm trying to do and the world I'm in, my position in it. I need to act and react to situations in a way that reflects what I'm trying to do and how I understand my situation. And I need to keep evaluating that. And that's how I actually become a more authentic, realer person. Whether it's me at a personal level talking about being a better husband or a better father to my two kids or a better teacher to you or a better son to my parents or a better brother to my sister and brother. The pure model has been effectively applied to counseling and coaching situations. That's going to be, that's kind of my other thing, right? So my background is, I did my PhD in applied health sciences, but um, at University of Waterloo with a kind of minor in, with a, my basic focus was on the psychology of martial art participation and specifically Chinese martial arts and very much on this idea of how counseling and coaching literature is only sort of, like the overlap is huge. And the potential overlap is even bigger if those fields weren't kind of so set on being distinct. Because really, if you're talking about human performance, it's like a lot of coaching and a lot of therapy has a similar motivational aspect. And it's all about working with different types of people in different types of high pressure, stressful situations. Tons of similarities, tons of similarities. <laughs> I don't know why said that twice but okay next slide all right i'm gonna try watching this one with you see how this goes 
you remember to pause over here if I need Unlimited to possibilities are not suited to man. If they existed, his life would only dissolve in the boundless. To become strong, a man's life needs the limitations ordained by duty and voluntarily accepted. The individual attains significance as a free spirit only by surrounding himself with these limitations and by determining for himself what his duty is. In discussions of freedom, there is a tendency to focus on political freedom. But there is another form of freedom. The I Ching, if you saw that it referenced there where that quote was from, the I Ching, that's like one of the original Chinese philosophy texts. Which today is just as rare. That being okay, the psychological okay, freedom we experience when we recognize our weaknesses and bad habits, and instead of wallowing in self-pity, we exercise our autonomy in pursuit of a better life. This form of freedom is all too absent today. Addictions, compulsions, neuroses, and other self-sabotaging behaviors keep many of us locked in mental prisons and hinder our ability to flourish. Often these issues are attributed to flaws in our genetic or biological makeup. Hence, the solution is to alter our brain chemistry with regular doses of pharmaceutical drugs. But not all agree that a change in our biological makeup is the only, or even the best way, to escape from our faulty ways of being. Stephen Pressfield, in his book Turning Pro, put forth an alternative theory. He argues that many of us will only So I want you to pay attention to this idea, okay? So I've... The reason I selected this video to include is largely around this idea of becoming professional, okay? So I want you to take note, if you're taking notes, around this, this concept of being a professional that's about to be discussed. I'm going to back it up just a couple seconds. Of theory, he argues that many of us will only find a cure to what ails us if we can regain control of our life and begin moving in a direction which permits us to enjoy the life-affirming experience associated with personal growth. And the best way to do this, he argues, is to commit ourselves to the pursuit of excellence in a self-chosen field, a process mm. he calls turning pro. Turn what pro. ails you and me, wrote Pressfield, has nothing to do with being sick. What ails us is that we are living our life. Think about that for a sec. Well, that is a quote on your dream board or whatever it's like what ails us is that we're living as amateurs the solution turn pro that's going to mean something different for me it's going to mean something different to you turn pro is somebody that you know is professional with how you get your kids ready in the morning you're professional with your night routine you're professional with your eating you're professional with your training you're professional with how you take notes. You're professional with how you prepare for things. You're professional with how you organize yourself when you go to the store. It's not about like being super perfectionist. It's actually the opposite of that. It's actually, well, it's not the opposite of that. It's different than that. Being professional, being intentional, being uh, yourself, the same person as yourself, but at a higher functioning level more consistently. Right, because even if you look at sports, like what's the difference between a really good amateur athlete and a pro athlete? A lot of it is consistency, being able to do it on command, time after time, at a super high level. Again, Stephen Pressfield turning pro and the idea 
what ails us is that we're living our lives as amateurs. That's deep. If you if you take it seriously, that's a, that's a deep comment. Lives as amateurs. The solution is that we turn pro. The decision of the amateur to remain locked in a mediocre life and that of the pro who decides to discipline himself to excellence are both responses to the recognition that life consists of suffering. Yet while the amateur seeks relief from the pain of life primarily through the numbing effects of addictions and the pursuit of pleasures, the pro strives to rise above his suffering through what Pressfield calls Right, and those ways of, of doing things and responding are, it's not that it's not understandable, it's that it might not be serving you to your, I don't know, maximum potential, optimum potential. This whole course is about this idea of sort of optimizing potential, right? How can you become a stronger version of yourself, not assuming that there's anything wrong with you, but like, again, positive psychology, like how do we use some of these core psychological concepts and, and ways of viewing ourselves in our world to actually add value and become better versions of ourselves and become better versions of our relationships and turn pro. Labor and love. Some people are lucky in that they find a calling early in life and commit to turning pro with little thought as to what they are doing. For others, however, the choice to turn pro requires many wasted years drifting in despair before the realization strikes that a more purpose-driven existence is needed. No one is born a pro, wrote Pressfield. You've got to fall before you hit bottom. And sometimes that fall can be a hell of a ride. No one's born pro. If we decide to turn pro, we need to recognize that it is not a part-time endeavor. It's awesome. It requires Picture. daily sessions of what psychologists call deliberate practice, in which we own our craft through persistence and focus. Our yeah. vocation, or calling, must become a top priority. In place of the hours we previously devoted to pleasurable distractions, we must devote this time to cultivating the habits and skills needed to excel in our work. Turning pro, in whatever field we choose, involves placing ourselves in self-imposed chains of... And remember, we're not just talking about this as some kind of flowery, fancy philosophy. We're saying that actually, no, it's like a solution for the intense overwhelming situation that you may be experiencing in your life right now it's like the way to actually deal with this like massive increase on de of demand or whatever like of is to become uh, more efficient and that the trick is inside you it's like the, sorry but with my kid it's like with my five-year-old it's like kung fu panda one kung fu panda two kung fu panda three kung fu panda one kung fu panda two kung fu panda three we're just constantly siphoning through them so kung fu panda one what's on the dragon scroll nothing the secret to the universe is nothing you make your own meaning that wasn't the best description of it i should do something more specific on the ending of kung fu panda one it's actually like one of the deepest movies that exists but let's keep going with this idea but the point i was trying to make is like when poe the kung fu panda turns pro and becomes the, the dragon warrior uh and you know becomes the hero it's like turning pro that's actually kind of a weird i kind of stumbled backwards into that one but I guess it actually is pretty relevant. Discipline, for paradoxically, 
This is the path to psychological freedom. Freedom, in its essence, is the acceptance of the chains which suit you and for which you are suited, and of the harness in which you pull towards an end chosen and valued by yourself and not imposed. imposed. It is not and never can be the absence of restrictions, obligations or law and of duty. While most people can structure their life around the pursuit of excellence, many flee from this way of life by resorting to two main excuses. The first excuse is based on the belief that we are insignificant creatures in a universe deaf to our desires, and so the point of life should be to enjoy the ride, not to burden ourselves with the task of achieving anything of lasting worth. But this ignores the fact that every one of us possesses an innate urge to growth, and that if we refuse to heed this calling, we become self-destructive and prone to sicknesses of the mind, or as the psych- Right, so that's like the whole humanistic psychology point, right? And he's about to say, as the psychologist, and I'm not sure, I can't remember, I've only seen this video a couple times, but I liked it. I love the Academy of Ideas, um, this source. But he was about to quote a psychologist, and I forget, but this is the whole kind of underlying philosophical um, foundation of the humanistic psychology or the growth psychology movements. That's like all of your, like, Maslow and Carl Rogers and, and that whole crew but this idea of like having this or this Rogers would call Carl Rogers called it an actualizing tendency and then like um, Maslow called it obviously self-actualization as a lot of you would know psychologist James Hillman wrote Hillman. present in body and absent in spirit he lies back on the couch shamed by his own potentials in his soul that will not be subdued. He feels himself inwardly subversive, imagining in his passivity extremes of aggression and desire that must be suppressed. Solution? More work, more money, more drink, more weight, more things, more infotainment. Wow. This one cuts, it's like, okay. Let's break this down present in body but absent in spirit what a way to start that so it's like you're there but it's like you've lost your your soul or your spirit he lies back on the couch shamed by his own potentials in his soul that will not be subdued so it's like he has this like potential in his soul so it actually uses the word soul there um that's not being used he feels himself in inwardly subversive that's an awesome word so that it's like he sees like the world around him is like nonsense and he doesn't agree with it and he's like inwardly subversive meaning like he's inwardly resistant to it subversive means like going against the current but by going against it by going under it subversive Imagining his passivity extremes of imagining in his passivity, so in his state of just lying on the couch, he's imagining this like aggression and desire. Right, aggression and desire. Can you get more Freudian? Right, so in so this person is lying back. Just think about this. This is like this is the problem of addiction. This is like the problem of so much mental health. It's like this negative emotionality turned inward. 
the solution, more work, more money, more drink, more weight, more things, more infotainment. It's quite the quote. Some of us, on the other hand, recognize the importance of turning pro, yet we continually delay in taking action. We tell ourselves we will turn pro when we find ourselves, or when we have overcome our depression, anxiety, or addictions. Hmm. Yet if Pressfield's theory has merit, this evasive tactic is again built on a psychological error. For turning pro is not something we do once we have cured our problems or found out who we are. Rather, turning pro is the cure. It is the means by which we become who we are. What we get when we turn... You won't add that to your note, right? Turning pro is the cure. And I'm not expecting you're taking like word for word note, right? Like notes. Just if there's there's parts of it that are relevant. The turning pro is part of the cure. It is the cure. It's like because what you're doing is you're you're actually it's almost like you're you've upgraded your phone's operating system. It's like you've upgraded your brain's operating system upgraded and then all of a sudden you're like just processing things differently and you're you're a more efficient version of yourself. And some of it is just this like comes from this inspiration that has to come from this hope that what you're doing matters. And this is why, at the end of this presentation, as we get deeper into it, and that, especially next week, I'm going to be talking so much about existentialism, because at a certain point, positive psychology almost only makes sense. Theoretically, it's only more than, say, like, just a new age, whatever, flowery snake oil. It's like, the only thing that makes it not that is this deep root and existential anxiety and in this existential anguish like this and think of existential as just like the word existence right like just all these ideas of like who are we and what are we supposed to be doing with our lives and is there god and what's our role in the universe and what happens after we die and what about the people we lose and all those kind of things what we find is when we get no what we find no sorry, sorry, what we get when we turn pro is we find our power we find our will and our voice and we find our self-respect we become who we always were but had until then been afraid afraid to embrace and live out turn pro is we find our power we find our will and our voice and we find our self-respect we become who we always were, but had, until then, been afraid to embrace and to live out. If we decide to turn pro, it is crucial we do so for the right reasons. For while turning pro will increase our chances of attaining riches, social status, and perhaps even fame, if we turn pro primarily in order to obtain these goods, we may sabotage our efforts. Our energy, if too fixated on worldly success, will cause our work to suffer. If the rewards do not come quick enough, as they seldom do, it is unlikely we will want to continue making the necessary sacrifices required to attain excellence. We will not, in other words, become pro unless we can place our desire for money or status behind our ambition to nourish our skills and potentials. But if we can find the inner drive to commit ourselves to this uncommon way of life, Right, which is basically like an intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation argument, right? That like, if you're 
motivation for all your self-development is reward-based, like it's to get specific things, unless you have this like continually evolving set of rewards that's like always like the new shiny toy or whatever. Eventually the, the motivating power is diminished and we're going to spend time whole week at the end of the course and i know i'm like kind of weak uh late getting to this course but please don't think that i'm like taking it lightly uh i'm really ready to go deep in this course and to hit some interesting topics and when i started my teaching career i was teaching in um, cognitive psych at waterloo that was the first class i ever taught actually it was like a social cognition class and i want to spend some time um well that and developmental psych actually i've been teaching even a little bit longer but I want to spend some time talking about motivation and drive, but taking it from a very cognitive psychology perspective. And that's like one of the ones you can see it on the outlines kind of near the end of the course. All right, let's finish up this video. We're almost there. We will discover that over time, the psychological rewards we obtain far outweigh any form of worldly success. For as we strive towards the heights intrinsic. of personal greatness, our psychological problems will no longer affect us as they once did. They will have been neutralized by a sense of inner peace and accomplishment sorely lacking in the lives of most. And notice how he's not saying that, like, your pains will disappear. He actually uses the very specific word neutralized. Right? It's like, think if you have, like, a, an acidic chemical in the water and you put it in a chemical to neutralize it, you're not actually removing it. You're counterbalancing it. It's like you might have um, stresses in your life or in your relationship. It's like one of the things they say is like being able to like laugh with your partner or like share, watch an interesting show together that you both like. It's like things like that can really help relationships long term because they can be counterweights to say arguments or things that you disagree with. It's like it's an important concept for like stable long-term relationships or okay so let's finish this out whereas the Taoist sage Lao Tzu advised Lao Tzu. chase after money and security and your heart will never unclench care about people's approval and you will be their prisoner do your work then step back the only path to serenity there's your quote if you're putting something on the wall. Do your work, then step back. Honestly, talk about being a pro. Do your work, then step back. Lao Tzu, the great Taoist. The, let me tell this, take two seconds, right? So Lao Tzu, this old man. And uh, I, won't quit, I won't do the whole origin story, but... I could, I could do a whole rant on Lazo. I love Lazo. So Lazo is like the person. So anyways, so as he's like, he has these students and everything, he's like this known philosopher and wise man. And as he's, he famously, as he like kind of rides away, he's, the story is he rides off on a water buffalo into the mountains to like kind of live out his final years as a hermit. And as he's like leaving, one of the students at the gate, the guy at the gate of the town, recognizes him and kind of begs him to write down his teachings before he leaves so he writes down these like 81 or something i think it's 81 poems and that's what's called the Tao Te Ching and that's the um 
the kind of main philosophical text of Taoism, which is one of the main religious and philosophical schools of thought in China, right? So in China, the kind of big ones are, are Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucius, Confucian thought. Confucius was like a absolute heavyweight of a philosopher. Okay, I think this is basically at the end, but I'll just let this play out so it doesn't make the video hiccup. Academy of Ideas. These guys are, that guy's awesome. I don't know him, but he's cool. Alright, so that video is completed, so I think we're cool. Hopefully that all works good and is synced decently. So I thought that, I hope that you liked that last video, the Academy Ideas one about purpose and about specifically, I love that idea about turning pro and I would want to challenge you, like what, maybe I should title the first assignment that, but I was going to have it focused on that idea anyways, but what would turning pro mean for you? Let me just be personal for a sec. For me, it would mean like sharpening my morning routine a bit better, maybe getting up a little bit earlier so I can make sure that I have a good breakfast myself because a lot of mornings I end up just making breakfast for Evie and helping her get out the door with my wife. Like if I could really master that morning routine and then if I could like work on getting to bed earlier and if I could work on responding to my emails better. It's like those are kind of, like, there's, like, there's things in my life that I think I'm doing pretty good and there's areas I could get better at and tighten. It's like, I was just freestyling there a bit about things that were sort of on my mind about tightening, tightening up, but like we all have, it's like sit on your bed and close your eyes and be honest with yourself for five minutes. Your brain will flood you with areas where you can improve. It's like the idea is the way to level up is to just take yourself seriously and to change those things that you know you can change that are individual to you. You know, as I'm explaining, rambling on this point, I just keep looking at this picture of Martin Buber, another intellectual heavyweight, right? And he had this idea of I and thou and that existential difference between me and you. I and thou. All right, so just for the video's sake, I'll read this out. Existential positive psychology emphasizes the need for building authentic, like real relationships, not fake relationships and for belonging to actual supportive communities right because it's like the reason I said actual I added that's not actually as you can see if you're looking at the video it's not in that quote but it's like I'm trying to get to that point where it's like oh we need to build community and have good relationships everyone's like yeah yeah blah 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 it's like who hasn't heard that 900 million times but it's like no specifically it's not a saying Good relationships is saying authentic real relationships true relationships relationships that are actually based on loyalty and dependability and people that you would go to battle for and it's like because that's significantly different than being relationships that aren't defined by that boober's model of this i thou so boober's just his last name model of the i thou existential encounter represents one of the promising ways to open up authenticity right is like one of my ways to be real is to be real with you This is like this poetic language to build a bridge across the abyss that separates us. The Chinese value, and this is where existentialism and Chinese, the Chinese, but and this is Wang, uh, uh, this is sorry, Paul Wong's definition of this, but like the 
Chinese traditional Taoist philosophy and uh, especially like Lao Tzu and, and, and some of the early Taoist philosophers, the relationship between those ideas and existentialism is really strong. And a lot of people like Frankel and Carl Jung were heavily read in Eastern philosophy, what used to be called just generally Eastern philosophy, um, but more specifically Taoism, which is a weird word because it's T-A-O-ism, but it's pronounced as if it's a D, it's pronounced Taoism, but it's Taoism spelled. So anyways, this, this philosophical value of emphasizing relationships and all kinds of interaction and actually like, if you actually, you know, value the people around you and it's like, then you engage them differently and they engage you differently. And that little piece of the world is a little bit nicer. I thought that I thought this was an interesting quote from Paul Wong too. Existential positive psychology accepts isolation anxiety, right? This anxiety caused from like this sense of not being connected with things and like, you know, which is as intense now as ever as is an existential given. Like it's just part of the situation. It's like you're your own person. It's this Martin Buber, I, thou. There's forever going to be that dash between me and you or I and thou. It's this what he called, I forget on the last slide, but something like an abyss, right? Like the emptiness of space separates it. It's always just you. It's always just me. Sorry, I was just trying to be dramatic about that point. The idea here is existential positive psychology accepts that, accepts like, of course, of course, because of the fact that you're a unique individualized biological entity that has a visual processing system that has two eyes that, you know, creates your visual experience in a highly personalized way that's then flooded with meaning from your own memory bank to make sense of it all interpretively. It's like that does create a world where you're your own in a very real way and everyone else is different. But the complexity is that's also true for every single other person. And this is the the Martin Buber, the depths of kind of this I, thou thing. But recognizes that it's through our loneliness that we seek community and intimacy as a major source of personal meaning. It's like, because we are almost desperate for this connection, it makes the connection more valuable and more meaningful. A commonly held belief is that psychological disorders are primarily the result of biochemical imbalances which can be treated with pharmaceutical medications. This view, however, is not accepted by all. In the mid-20th century, there arose a therapeutic movement called existential psychotherapy, constructed upon the idea that some psychological disorders, such as cases of anxiety and depression, are the result of an individual's inability to reconcile themselves with certain characteristics of the human so one thing that's uh <clears throat> excuse me important to keep in mind with the history of psychology is oftentimes things exist in response to other things right so there's like all of a sudden things start to go in a huge behavioral 
trend and then in a huge cognitive trend and then in a huge biological trend and then in a huge pharmaceutical trend and then in a huge anti-pharmaceutical trend and these are like back and forth and anti-pharmaceutical like if you look at the work of somebody like R.D. Lang like if you put an R uh, period D period Lang like L-A-N-G um, fascinating guy fascinating guy he was a Scottish psychologist um, read that existential psychotherapy is based on the idea that some psychological disorders are the result of an individual's inability to reconcile themselves reconcile themselves with the certain characteristics of the human condition like like death or morality or the fact that you know we all have an expiration date or that we lose, lose loved ones or that we can be betrayed human condition while biochemical imbalances may be present in such people, the imbalances are not necessarily the cause of their suffering, but rather a symptom, the cause being their inability to deal with the existential dilemmas of human life. Treatment for psychological afflictions of this sort, according to existential psychotherapy, involves... So again, I think like, you're all smart people, you have to take all these perspectives is piece a part of this the puzzle right obviously there's scenarios where pharmaceuticals make sense for some people in certain situations now what the existentialists were saying though at the time when a lot of them were doing their actual base writing is that the field at that time was viewing pharmaceutical based solutions as the answer to everything right so a guy like Artie Lang is actually really critical, not necessarily of medicine, but of the rise of this field of psychiatry, right? Like not psychology, psychiatry. Not medication, but self-reflection, philosophical exploration, an expansion of awareness and acceptance of the human condition. In this video, we'll provide a brief overview of existential psychotherapy. In the process, we'll examine some of the characteristics of human existence which can stimulate suffering, and explore ideas on how to deal with these issues and live a more vibrant life. Existential psychotherapy has its roots in three schools of thought, phenomenology, humanistic psychology, and existentialism. From phenomenology, it... Okay. Probably jump around with the video too much when I'm recording like this but it looks like it's doing it pretty crisp and clean this is pretty cool if it works um so phenomenology is something that I'll teach about and I'll do uh next time the second lecture when I'm talking more about existentialism specifically um I'll get into phenomenology quite a bit and phenomenology is uh Well, it was like a main part of my focus of my PhD research, and it's really looking at this idea of as human beings, we're not just like walking around with eyes that are video recorders, just objectively viewing everything. We're adding meaning into everything we're seeing, and we're, our perception is right up at sensation. And so we're adding, we're having phenomenological experiences because of that, and Again, I don't expect you to have that in your notes and that not just what I just rambled there makes sense. 
because it's what it really is is this whole it's a branch of philosophy that kind of comes from germany sort of pre-world war ii a lot of the work of people like edmund husserl and uh martin heidegger is definitely the most famous name the humanistic psychologists you'll, you'll know like this is going to be like maslow and rogers and guys like that existentialism you'll have heard of frankel phenomenology it borrows the idea that the individual's immediate experience and personal grasp of reality is primary and the appropriate subject of concern ludwig binswanger one of the best known existential analysts conveyed this point there is not one space and time only but as many spaces and times as there are subjects from humanistic psychology, existential psychotherapy borrows the idea that the individual, far from being a plaything of deterministic forces, has the capacity to change and direct their life, and fulfill the innate human desire to live fully and realize one's highest potentials. And finally, existential psychotherapy borrows many insights concerning the human condition arrived at by existential thinkers of the past. These thinkers were largely concerned with what can be called the ultimate concerns of human existence. In this, it's really interesting because I'm not actually sure who that third guy was, but that picture there—they had three people, and one was Nietzsche, and the other one was Dostoevsky. And it's interesting that they're both there, right? Because like Nietzsche is one of my favorites, but he's like a real heavyweight philosopher, and then Dostoevsky is. Um more of like a literature writer right like he wrote crime and punishment the, the epic classic and uh in some ways they're, they're very similar right but they're kind of interesting because they're like fiction and non-fiction but both sort of presenting a similar philosophy this existential philosophy this video will explore four of these ultimate concerns death, freedom, isolation, and meaninglessness, as well as insights which can limit the suffering such concerns can cause. Death is perhaps the most obvious of the ultimate concerns. While life is the possibility of possibility, death is the impossibility of further possibility, the ultimate Ooh. boundary that limits and structures our existence. Some have proposed that the fear of death greatly influences our Some have proposed that the fear of death existence. that. Life is the possibility of possibilities, Surgeon Kierkegaard. Yeah, the possibility of possibility. The impossibility of further possibility. It's really interesting when you start looking at like how much of philosophy goes back to people like Kierkegaard and even Immanuel Kant before him. Hegel, Heidegger. There was this real like strong European philosophical movement as a leak to one of your assignments. I'm going to get you to look into one of these people, but and these two are both on the list, Heidegger and, and Kierkegaard, they're both just absolute philosophical heavyweights. Some have proposed that the fear of death greatly influences our internal experience. Lurking beneath our every waking moment is a death anxiety which subconsciously influences our behavior and structures our worldview. The 20th century psychoanalyst Gregory Zilberg wrote that, If this fear were constantly conscious, we should be unable to function normally. 
it must be properly repressed to keep us living with any modicum of comfort. The 17th century French author Francois de la Rochefoucauld put the same point more succinctly. You cannot stare straight into the face of the sun or death. Robert J. Lifton, a psychiatrist and author, proposed that human beings repress the fear of death through the attempt to achieve what he called symbolic immortality. According to him, there are three main ways this is done. The biological mode of living through one's progeny, the theological mode of believing in an afterlife or reincarnation, and the creative mode of attempting to live on through one's works. Some have noted, however, that there is a danger in repressing one's fear of death too much, arguing that we need a little bit of death anxiety to seep into our conscious experience to help us live more fully. The philosopher Michel de Montaigne urged that we need to practice familiarizing ourselves with death, keeping death in our rearview mirror, so to speak. He who would teach men to die, wrote Montaigne, would teach them to live. Which is interesting, right? Because that sounds like morbid until you think about it like... Um, the samurai were famous for that too. The samurai would spend a lot of time contemplating their own death. And that sounds like you're like, what? Like, oh, why is that something you should? Well, because then when they were in battle, they would, they weren't afraid. They weren't, they had already processed the cognitions associated with those experiences. And so they could respond more in the moment. He who would teach men to die would teach them to live. And then, right, because part of it is that it also, when you contemplate things like death, it forces you to examine like what you actually care about and how much weight are you putting into things that don't really matter or Maybe even people that don't really matter or that are, you know, not going to be there in the long term. It's like, it forces you to really take this existential look at who you're trying to be in the life you're trying to live. And at the very core, core, core of it, that's all existential is, right? Like existentialism, you could find 900 books probably at the local Nipissing Library. Not 900, but a bunch of books on existential stuff. And lots of people will say it lots of ways, but it's basically the root word. And I've always been fascinated with like the breaking down the actual word, the actual word like exist. There's this existence aspect, right? Of like, well, the fact that we even exist and that there's something and not nothing in that. We live in the universe and that we don't understand the universe but we and we live on the earth and we don't really understand our history on the earth or what we're doing or what we're going to be doing or how we're supposed to be or what does supposed to be even mean and all these questions right all these like existential questions in his book existential psychotherapy Irvin Yalem nicely summarized the benefits yeah. of becoming more closely acquainted with one's fear of death. So we're going to be looking at Yalem a lot in this course. If you look ahead, there's a, a lecture called, uh, I forget what I titled it, but it's about like humanistic aspects or like therapeutic groups, I think I called it. We're going to be looking at Yalem's work. He just called him Yalem. I, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Yalem, but it doesn't really matter. Really big name in... Uh, terms of group psychology probably the biggest name in group psychology like how to actually run like a 
that when I mean group psychology, I don't mean social psychology. I mean like uh, doing like group therapy with groups of people. Denial of death at any level is a denial of one's basic nature and begets an increasingly pervasive restriction of awareness and experience. The integration of the idea of death saves us. Rather than sentence us to existences of terror or bleak pessimism, it acts as a catalyst to plunge us into more authentic more life modes, authentic. and it enhances our pleasure in the living of life. While death is the most obvious of the ultimate concerns, freedom is perhaps the least obvious. It is usually assumed that freedom is intrinsically desirable, but quite frequently individuals are apprehensive about freedom, and in the words of Eric Fromm, can even develop a fear of freedom. Can freedom become a burden too heavy for man to bear? Something he tries to escape from? Eric Fromm would say that. But no, it's, uh, see, these people, see, I, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. Eric Fromm, um, so I don't know how much, if you're interested or not, but I'm going to assume you are kind of interested in the history of all this. Uh, and so what I'll do when I'm talking about some of these guys and some of these psychologists, some of these ladies too, that are some of these women too, like, uh, especially when we're talking about people like Karen Hornet or Anna Freud or some of these big names that we're going to talk about that have relevance to these discussions is like, they were interesting people outside of just their immediate feel like Eric Fromm was a psychoanalyst. Right, so he's trained a uh, trained Freudian, but then he was really politically socialist and got really heavily involved in this group called the Frankfurt School, which you might have heard of or might not have heard of. And if you have, it's 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 interesting to look into who they are. Um, and it's it shouldn't be surprising that these people like all had. Whether we're talking about Skinner, this is more like the other course I'm teaching in developmental psych, but when you talk about someone like Skinner and the fact that like Skinner had ties with the U.S. Defense Department, and of course he did, because these people were huge names in highly relevant fields that were emerging, and uh, there were also a lot of political and cultural and social things and military things, and economic things happening at that same time too so it none of these things happened in a vacuum and so there's like this deep history to all this stuff sorry i got a bit rambly there just from the name eric from but an interesting psych psychoanalyst who kind of took freud's ideas and brought them to this other way right so like the frankfurt school is sort of a combination of or a forced merger of freudian psychoanalysis and uh well, basically, social Marxism. History is fascinating. It's all, all this stuff. Like the last 150 years or so. Right, because it's all like, look at this picture too. It's like people walking in a circle with guards like watching them march in a circle. To be free means to be responsible for one's life, the author of one's own destiny. Because of the okay, overwhelming so series... At that point...
point I do agree, right? Because I was struggling to see the point there of like, because I've seen this video before, but not for a while. And I was like, I'm trying to watch it, not like pretend like I haven't seen it, but watch it somewhat like I'm watching it with you. Um, and I was struggling there with like that idea of sometimes freedom's too much of a burden. It's like, anyways, I was struggling with that point, but this idea of like, yeah, it's like for some people, I think that. Well, there's an ownership and responsibility and obligation associated with the idea that there's like more of an internal locus of control or like the idea that like what you do matters and you have responsibility. You're responsible for what you do. And then therefore, if you don't work hard, then, then, then you're responsible for that too. We're so sometimes thinking that it's it's not your responsibility there's not the the benefit and the reward attached but there's also not the risk of failure business and importance of this task people frequently flee from freedom and hence the responsibility of determining one's own path in life it is certainly true wrote abraham maslow that many of us evade our constitutionally suggested vocations, call, destiny, task in life, mission. So often we run away from the response. Constitutionally suggested vocations. That's, that's awesome language. Right? Like your actual constitution, what actually makes you up. Your call in life, your destiny, your task, your mission. So often we run away from responsibilities dictated by nature, by fate dictated or rather suggested I'm interested to know if those uh, what's in the brackets has been added or was in the original quote but uh, either way that's an awesome quote by Maslow and see okay oh I kind of lost my point earlier of what I was trying to say there but I think one thing especially since all of you are probably coming from different places in your um, learning process. I think one thing that I can kind of add to the story is a little bit of that. Like I've always been fascinating with, fascinated with who these people were as, as real life people and how they kind of fit together and the interrelation between them and stuff. Maslow's one of the best ones in terms of like, I don't know. I still haven't heard of like a shady side of Maslow, so. And if you know something, please don't wreck Maslow for me. No, I'm just joking, but like, well, and it's not that they have shady sides. It's just that. Well, it's just like, it's just that psychology obviously has a darker, less spoken aspect of its history. And a lot of it is in the experimental psychology areas. Okay, let's get back to this video. Abilities dictated, or rather suggested by nature, by fate. Many existential thinkers have suggested that when one ignores their constitutionally suggested vocation, and thus lives inauthentically, it is possible to find one's way back to unauthentic existence through feelings of guilt. Irvin Yalom wrote, One who fails to live as fully as one can experiences a deep, powerful feeling which I refer to here as existential guilt. Existential guilt is a positive constructive force, a guide calling oneself back to oneself. To Existential guilt. It's like guilt at an existent level. Like you're like, 
guilty to your own spirit or to the universe or and again it's like the religious language well again it's like at this deep level of depth the religious language sort of makes sense to people and that that guilt that guilt that you're not being the person that you could be that you're that's a tongue twister the guilt that you're not being the person that you could be being is Yalom's talking about this as a constructive force, a guide calling oneself back to oneself. The guy's a poet. Yalom actually is a really good writer, and in terms of, like, if you were to just pick up psychology books and read them, the existentialists are the best reads, right? Because they're... Well, to a degree, I don't know how much I mean that. I do mean that to a certain extent, because they're philosophical, right? Like, existentialism is a... And this is what we're going to get into more next week. But the roots of it are philosophy. So a lot of the people that are kind of existential philosophers kind of have one foot in both doors. So the, the writing tends to be a little more philosopher-ish. All right, back to the video. You guys are like, okay, we get you. Back to the video. Anyways, this is kind of, I hope, what this class will be like, right? I'll do some stuff where it's like more traditional powerpoint and then i want to kind of add in some of these especially if i review this and it's not glitchy and it looks good oh, this is a kind of cool way to review a video the extent that one accepts their freedom and thus the fact that one is responsible for one's destiny one is faced with the chilling realization that one is alone existential isolation referring to an unbridgeable gulf between oneself and any other being is another ultimate concern that each individual must come to terms with through the course of their psychological development. The 20th century psychotherapist Helmuth Kaiser wrote, Becoming an individual entails a complete, a fundamental, an eternal, and insurmountable isolation. The fact that becoming an individual entails isolation explains why many people cower from the task of becoming an individual, preferring instead to alleviate their feelings of loneliness via conformity and immersion in the masses. Eric Fromm, in his book Escape from Freedom, noted the intimate connection between existential isolation and conformity. He adopts entirely the kind of personality offered to him by cultural patterns, and he therefore becomes exactly as all others are, and as they expect him to be. The discrepancy between I and the world disappears, and with it, the conscious fear of aloneness and powerlessness. The person who gives up his individual self and becomes an automaton, identical with millions of other automatons around him, need not feel alone and anxious anymore. But the price he pays, however, is high. It is the loss of his self. The path to becoming an individual... That is an awesome word. Automaton? Let's go over this for a sec. So he's talking about people that like are don't want to kind of think for themselves, so they just go along with whatever they're told to, probably by back in the day by the religion, nowadays by their phones. He adopts an entirely he adopts entirely the kind of personality offered to him by the cultural patterns. That's so. It's so like condescending in a way to and be, therefore becomes exactly as all others are and as they expect him to be. 
the discrepancy between I and the world disappears. And with it, the conscious fear of aloneness and powerlessness. You're not afraid. You're the group. The person who gives up their individual selves becomes an odd automaton. Automaton. You know, as Pink Floyd would say, a brick in the wall. Identical with millions of other automatons around him. Not, need not feel alone or anxious anymore, but the price he pays, however, is high. It's the loss of the self. Nice, Eric Fromm, that's a solid quote. Requires that one not flee isolation, but embrace it, suffer it, and develop the ability to actively face the feeling of being alone and abandoned by the world. The feeling of being alone and abandoned by the world can force one to question the meaning of life, another ultimate concern each individual must wrestle with. It is very common for people to struggle with the question of life's meaning, which Albert Camus called the most urgent question of all. But confronting this question is of the ultimate importance, for as Carl Jung commented, meaning makes a great many things endurable, perhaps everything. Many existentialists have stressed that the ultimate meaning of human existence is unattainable. As Viktor Frankl put it, the ultimate meaning necessarily exceeds and surpasses the finite intellectual capacities of man. But while the ultimate meaning of life may be out of our grasp, this does not preclude one from finding personal meaning or meaning to one's own existence. Modern humans face the task of finding some direction to life without an external beacon. How does one proceed to construct one's own meaning, a meaning sturdy enough to support one's life? Although constructing one's Right, how do you live your life without like a specific user's guide and roadmap? There's no external beacon. There's no like uh, lighthouse in the distance. Zone meaning is an individual task requiring an individual solution. Numerous thinkers of isolated self-actualization as a particularly potent solution. In the 4th century BC, Aristotle asserted that the proper end or aim of each thing is the realization of its own being or the actualization of its latent potentialities. An acorn's proper end is to develop into a healthy oak tree, while the individual's proper end is to actualize the latent capacities within. An idea expressed in the ancient Greek poet Pindar's assertion to become who you are. Becoming who you are is not a guarantee, but a difficult and arduous task requiring self-knowledge, commitment and courage and is thus a purpose or meaning worthy and sturdy enough to support one's life. It is reasonable to assume in practically every human being there is an active will toward health, an impulse toward growth, or toward the actualization of human potentialities. But at once we are confronted with the saddening realization that so few people make it. Only a small proportion of the human population gets to the point of identity, or of selfhood, full humanness, self-actualization. While the ultimate concerns which structure and limit our existence, death, freedom, isolation, and meaninglessness... Right, because somebody that self-actualized is like the opposite of an automaton. An automaton like is so the group that they're not their own identity. They're, they're the group. It's a devastating distinction if you kind of get what I'm saying here. can be burdensome, fear-provoking, and even tragic, it is possible to come to terms with them by reflecting on the human condition and actively working towards an acceptance of the fate which binds us all. 
Although these ultimate concerns are problems which have no single solution and cannot be solved once and for all, it is important to remind oneself of Seneca's insight into the power of the human mind. There is nothing too difficult and arduous for the mind of man to be able to master, and that does not become familiar by constant meditation. Each of us has the ability to integrate the ultimate concerns of human existence into our being, meditate upon them, and eventually rise above them. For as Nietzsche said, there are heights of the soul from which even tragedy ceases to look tragic. Or in the words of Carl Jung, The greatest and most important problems of life are all fundamentally insoluble. They can never be solved, but only outgrown. What on a lower level had led to the wildest conflicts into emotions full of panic, viewed from the higher level of the personality, now seemed like a storm in a valley seen from a high mountaintop. This does not mean that the thunderstorm is robbed of its reality. It means that, instead of being in it, one is now above it. Carl Jung, to just accentuate this whole video, this does not mean that the thunderstorm is robbed of its reality. It means that instead of being in it, one is now above it. Awesome quote. Alright, I hope you enjoyed that video. Catch you on the next slide, my friends. Alright, my dear students, I hope you enjoyed that class, okay? I really appreciate you spending the time here. and uh, Let me leave you with this quote. Existential positive psychology is intended for all people, especially the suffering masses, with its emphasis on integrating negative experiences with positive ones. You know, it's not about erasing bad things. It's about, well, I guess it's about, and to a certain extent, it's about, you know, reducing the negativity in your life. But it's also about, like, maybe you've had experiences or something that can't be undone, but that counterbalancing positive experiences can be added to establish a path forward existential positive psychology highlights the painful human strivings which western society consumer culture wants us to ignore existential positive psychology stresses that it's only through our struggle and through our fortitude our strength in that face of that struggle that we will grow psychologically and spiritually it's only through embracing life in its totality including the bad parts that we wrestle with the ultimate concerns that can uplift humanity and improve the human condition Love you. See you next week.